Hey awesome nerds and welcome to D&D and TV, a podcast where me, your host Jeremy Vine, talks with a guest, in this case Mike, my buddy Dr. Chops. Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Chops. <laughs> um, we talk about TV shows where we really like rewatch each of the episodes and say how elements from those shows can be used in Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games. Uh, this week we're talking about season one of Invincible. In fact, episode three of season one, which is Who You Call an Ugly, directed by Jeff Allen and written by Chris Black, but Invincible originally designed by Robert Kirkman, um, Ryan Otley, and the last person who I remember never remember, which is going to be really annoying, but it, you know, there's a lot of people involved with Invincible. Go read the comics. And what a fantastic episode this was. Um, I know what question you were going to ask was like, hey, hey, Mike, you haven't read the comics, have you? And the answer is no. I am going into this show completely blind as I have never indeed read the comics whatsoever, uh, which is handy for me because that means I don't know what's coming. Um, probably worthwhile actually mentioning now as well, by the way. Spoiler alert for the cartoon and the cartoon only. We won't spoil the comics, but major spoilers for the cartoon ahead. Super huge spoilers for the cartoon ahead because this is one that we don't really... You got to spoil it. You got to know what's coming. I mean, you can kind of see what's coming in most of the episodes. Once you get through episode one and you know, Omni-Man's evil. Oh no, I just spoiled the entire fucking show. <laughs> but that's the end of episode one. And from there on, it's just this tragedy of seeing what's going to take it to the end of the series and exactly why is he evil and this oh this like you said this is a great episode because it opens on the funeral of all the people that omni-man just fucking murdered fucking murdered because that's what he did he just slaughtered them and it's so fucking creeping hearing him give the eulogy i know right and it was funny because what i was just about like you know what i was about to say like um when I was going to think about talking about this this episode in particular, was that this episode was just a lot of fun. Uh, there was a lot of um, this episode, and and this is not a complaint, but this episode, to me, felt like mm. it was entirely filler and a fair bit of character development where you get a little bit of insight into stuff, but it was a lot of fun. Um, nothing really too dark and grim or anything, but then again, you're right, actually. there is a, There is a depressing and a rather grim funeral uh, at the start, which gives us a little bit of insight. Um, or not real insight, but it lets us see uh, kind of the depths of depravity that the character of Omni-Man is very happy willing to sink to, um, you know, in terms of giving that eulogy and then going straight home and going like... I'm feeling pizza. I can be to Naples and back before the cheese stops bubbling. Honey... Let the delivery guy do it tonight. Sure. Oh, no, it's such a great element. This is a character development episode because it has that with him being like this super serious thing and then going home and he's like, I've just buried my friends, but I keep that out there. That is work stuff. This is home stuff. And it's kind of, he says this to Mark, even he, his son, invincible. He says this. This is new. I get it. But you need to keep that separate. What happens out there, the mistakes, even the victories, you can't bring it home. It's set up as this thing of you've got, if you're doing this, if you're a first responder, if you're dealing with trauma on a daily basis, you can't let it affect you at home because then you'll just collapse under the weight of it all. But when he does it, when you know that he fucking murdered these people and does not even care, it just becomes this horrific thing. And the... I love that in his eulogy, you can see why he does it as well. It's like they're laying all these these seeds of what he's doing. Because in the eulogy, he's like, And we are left to wonder, who will save us now? I will. And it's, you go, oh God, this is why you killed them. Because now you're the hero that everyone's going to have to look up to. It's like, you're the world's daddy. You're the one that everyone will go, hey... We need Omni-Man. We can't rely on the immortal or war women to do it. It's like, it's got to be Omni-Man now. And it's just, ah. But it it just dives into his characterization, which makes it funny once we get to actually his his motivations much later or much a few episodes down the line, we start to go, yeah, of course that makes sense. That's exactly why he's been doing this the, the whole time. 
you you just laid the the breadcrumbs leading up to it. But even from just that line in the eulogy, I'm just like, oh, this is like fashion. You don't say that when you're burying people you know. And it, uh, you know, for 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 people who watch the episode for the first time, and you know, especially for people that have not read the comics either, they're still trying to put these pieces together. So it you can tell that this real this, this hit the mark very well from the perspective of the writers in terms of what they were aiming for and i think that what they were aiming for was continuing to build that sense of uncertainty or mystery uh, amongst the viewers of what is the go here why yeah. did he do it why is he so happy to do this eulogy is he seriously just a complete and total you know, black-hearted, nasty villain, you know, a Hannibal Lecter of the superhero world like this, or... And then they see the interaction at home, uh, you know, where they have that conversation about, you know, the importance, you know, of, um, you know, Mark learning to separate, um, you know, the job or the vocation from the home life. And you do seem to get a bit of a piece of true emotional insight into Omni-Man where he seems to be showing a true level of care and affection for his wife and son and you know I think that we we are all uh, generally um, conditioned to believe that people who would um, happily and uh, without any sense of remorse um, murder a whole lot of people and then, you know, do the equivalent of dancing about on their graves by going <laughs> to deliver their eulogy and lie through your teeth about it. We're conditioned to think that a person that can do that doesn't have normal emotions. And, you know, a person like that shouldn't be capable of feeling affection uh, for those people close to them. Um, you know, that, that that's a very layman's um, disposition, you know. I consider myself a layman. Um, so when I'm looking at the idea of this character being portrayed such a way in the, in the show... It uh, definitely did raise many more questions and uh, by the same token, built a lot of interest for me uh, to stick with the show, continue watching it and get you know quite emotionally invested in seeing uh, what the what the true story was and what Omni-Man's real go was by the end of the show. Yeah, it does. I think that's really one of the strengths of this this show that we get that wham hit in the first episode of we know what happened. We know, like, there's no mystery of who killed the Guardians. The mystery is why. And that's kind of what we're going to see through the episodes as we delve into each of these characters, as we learn about what he's trying to teach Mark. This is kind of his worldview. That that idea of what does a a hero who murders people what do they look like at home what do they believe what is their their outlook on the things that they do um it's a, a really fascinating one i think it does actually work pretty well for rpgs because you start to have that empathy with other characters and it's part of role playing in particular you kind of have to get yourself into that mindset of i'm a person who was a soldier I was a person who was raised in a forest and I just believe in the cycle of nature. I am a Lord's child. There's a whole thing, that, that idea of figuring out who this person is and how they're going to interact with all these different different characters that they come across. Why have they, what each of their actions, what caused it? And I think that's that's what this episode's really useful for because you do already seen the action and now you're trying to justify it through through the explanations and the the diving into the character ideas i mean there's not actually that much nolan in this episode i've noticed for something that's so heavily about his actions we don't really see all that much of him mm-hmm. good point he's in the first first couple of scenes is like he's there for the guardians like the official guardians funeral and he's there for the the private guardian's funeral that it's only superheroes and family members because they can't actually know where they're really buried and then he like shows up a little bit later to talk to mark and talk about being a viltramide and these are your responsibilities as a viltramide and this is the balance that we must maintain as a life 
And that's kind of it. It's really, this is a much more Mark-heavy episode. I mean, there's some really great Mark stuff in this. Um, but mm. it is Mark coming to terms with the fact, again, like in the last episode where he came to terms with the fact that civilians can die and he might be responsible or he might not be responsible for not saving them. This is his realization that people above him can die, that he might die. Like this is so much about his, again, the realizations of mortality of him going, do I even want to do this? Do these are, these are people I know. These are people that my dad knew and they're just dead. And this is the world I'm stepping into. And you know what? <clears throat> An interesting element when it comes to, and, and there's a lot of people out there that will consider this a bit of a trope, but mm. it's an interesting element because Mark is dealing with some incredibly terrifying things. And um, over the past two episodes, we saw him try to come to grips with, uh, you know, the, the new terms and conditions of his life of being a superhero that truly scared him and whatnot. But the most terrified I've ever seen him in this show is the, the you know, after the pre credit scene, which was the funeral, the most terrified I've ever seen him in the entire show, I think, was when he, uh, in the first real opening scene of the show, this episode, <laughs> when he finally gets the courage to call the uh, the girl that he really likes, Amber. And um, he struggles to get a word out when he's on the phone to her. And um, I mean, haven't we all been there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, the trope, of course, being that the all powerful, or the um, the over, or at least the overwhelmingly powerful, and the invincible, is, yeah, 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 um, is still terrified by someone that he's um, powerfully attracted to. Um, you know. Yeah, we didn't really cover it in the last episode because we were getting um, talking about other stuff, but we kind of see their relationship develop uh, through through that. And it's interesting, the first episode we see, he gets beat up for her. And she doesn't need it at all, but he does anyway. And that intrigues her enough to be like, hey, friend of of Mark, give him my number, sort of stuff. And now he's finally using it. And I love that he fucking blows it. Because he is useless at talking to people. He blows it the first time. And she's like already having to be like, all right, I'll give you another chance from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So I she's want... a very, very forgiving person. <laughs> oh, she as is. The, as the show goes on, as the show goes on, like she has the the patience of an angel. She really does. Yeah, Amber is one of the well. Amber, I really like as a person. I think she makes horrible choices in men. She has just continues to give Mark chances when she really shouldn't. I don't get what she sees him in at all because she asks him on a study date, or he asks her on a study date. Um, early on in this episode, when they finally have the study eight, he disappears for an hour mm-hmm. and just leaves her there reading comics and then is like, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. It's just like, this is going to set up a trend of their relationship, of him like making plans and then just bailing on them just after it starts rather than doing anything responsible. But, I mean, we can't really blame him for it because like he's trying to save the world. And things like that. And we're not, I guess, as an audience, we're not meant to blame him for it uh, because we see him as the point of view character. But I'm stunned that Amber waits around for an hour for him to get back. I mean, the comics must have been fucking good, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, for sure. We can, we can only hope the writers of those in-universe comic books are anywhere near as close as good as Kirkman was writing Invincible. Um, oh, yeah. But the there's also, and uh, you know this this was I feel in hindsight maybe not the first time around when you know I was still um, absorbing everything for the first time. But in hindsight, uh, it was also quite strong and fairly on the nose about the use of amber setting up the stark contrast um, in terms of the uh, the level of honesty in the relationship. Yeah, because um, from that very first phone call. Um, you know, Amber plays a little bit of a joke on him by pretending not to know who he is when she call when when he calls her. You know, she answers the phone and she's like, "Hello," and he goes, "Hey, this is uh, Mark," and she's like, "Who?" And then he's like, you know, about to panic and hang up, and then she's like, oh, "I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm so glad you called me." But then she's like completely um, open and honest and, f- and you know frank with him uh, right mm-hmm. from the very very start. 
um you know the you know he calls her and it comes out in the phone call straight away hey i'm glad you called me and you know this, this isn't verbatim obviously but you know the you know he gets on the phone to her and he's stammering and he's terrified and whatever and she's just like hey i'm glad you called me you know i'm interested and you know i want a date basically is the uh is the gist of that conversation so he's just like oh um sweet as he wipes the sweat away and then he's like uh let's do a study aid i guess um but immediately you get that sense of amber is completely open and frank and honest um doesn't hide anything doesn't tell any lies and uh you know pulls no punches um with the things that she says either and what's really interesting is the people that tell mark not to tell her we only really see her interact with two well around two other people cecil shows up when she goes to the bathroom and cecil is very clear of oh like he just pops into existence as soon as amber's out of the room like teleports in and he's like i thought she'd never leave and it's like i'm not going to interrupt what you've got going on just to make you go and you know deal with this this crisis but you need to make the choice do you stay here which is it's fine if you want to do that you're not a hero but it's fine if you do that or do you go and help? And however you do that, that's up to you. You don't have to lie to her. You can do whatever you want. Just fucking go do the, the job I want you to do. When he gets back from that, he runs into Nolan. And this is when we get the second scene with Nolan. And Nolan's in his, his outfit as Omni-Man saying, look, you've got to find balance. And Nolan is the one that goes, you cannot tell her. Whoa, slow down. What's up? Cecil asked me to save Mount Rushmore, but I left Amber waiting in the room, so I gotta... You left a girl in your room while you flew off to deal with a crisis. Mm-hmm. Good. I mean, not good for her, but good. That's the tricky part of the job. Balancing what you want to do with what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember, you're not just a superhero, Mark. You're a Viltrumite. Mm-hmm. We have responsibilities. Mm-hmm that normal humans don't basically he's like no no you're a viltrumite you've got responsibilities all this stuff and it's like he's got a wife and a kid man just it's okay if people know your secret identity and i feel that this is kirkman and the writers just kind of completely deconstructing what it would be like actually having a secret identity like having to lie to all these people and we see it again that even down to the the toll it takes on a family, takes on a relationship. At the funeral, we see um, Olga, the Joseph, the Red Rush's, not even widow, because they weren't married. Like, it's just his girlfriend, who we've kind of got to know in a couple of scenes earlier. She's just in tears. She's, like, fuming that, that he's finally st- still and she can't see him. It's like he's not moving at all and she's not allowed to see him because his head's being crushed by fucking Omni-Man. But that's not the point. That we see this toll that being a superhero takes on the family and Mark's not even taking that on board. He just immediately assumes I cannot tell people. It's not the, if I tell people they'll come after my family, his dad's Omni-Man. If people find out that Mark Grayson is a superhero, what's going to happen to his mother? Who wants to piss off Omni-Man? Nobody does. So I think it's really telling that Nolan is the one that kind of leads him down the you've got to lie to this girl path. Mm-hmm. It's very controlling and very hypocritical of uh, Omni Man to do that. And um, one of the other, um, it also kind of conveys the theme of um, the might makes right kind of philosophy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, this is something that features quite heavily in a few other um, mature level uh comic books like you know the the boys um written by garth ennis uh was a you know was a prime example of this and how 99 percent of superheroes in that world are all assholes because they're superheroes um they're gods. You know, whatever they do they can get away with yeah like there are no rules for them they get to do what they want to do when they want to do it to who they want to do it to and um kind of started to get that uh feeling uh from and about omni-man uh, as this, uh, as you know, these episodes continue to unfold, and um, for someone like Omni Man, you know, clearly he's still getting away with it, right? Mm. Um, but then moving on into the next scene, uh, we see that kind of a um, that kind of a theme of 
a superhero trying to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it with who he wants to do it to uh backfires quite spectacularly fucking um, rex. are you ready to move on to the next scene yet yeah oh yeah fucking rex Rexplode, Rexplode. He is a disaster of a human being, and you know what? I loathed him in the comics because this is straight from the comics. In the show, I'm a little bit like, all right, I like seeing him get beat. I, I, I don't like him, but it, uh, it's enjoyable hating him at least here. It's like the Balkan skull from uh, old school Power yes. Rangers. Yes. He shows up all the time. He, every single time he shows up, he's a complete and total asshole. And every time he shows up, he also cops the karma for it as yeah. well. I, like, I um, do love that. There's always karma. He basically gets, yeah, he basically gets smacked down every single time you see him on camera. Almost every time you see him on camera. Um, but yeah, it's totally a karma thing. Like, um, for some reason, for Omni-Man, there doesn't seem to be any karma at all, at least so far. Um, but for someone like Rex Floyd who's, you know, nowhere near Omni-Man's level of power. He's just a teenager trying to, you know, be uh, be what he can be. Every time he breaks the rules, it's satisfying to see that he pays the price for it. Yeah, because Omni-Man, he's not a jerk about it. He's just kind of cold, I guess. It's like he doesn't seem to take... He doesn't care about other people's feelings, but he doesn't go out of his way to hurt them. Whereas Rex is completely different. We should explain what Rex actually does. Because Adam Eve, our um, our gorgeous redhead who comes back... I shouldn't say that. She's a teenager. Uh, comes back from the funeral. It's easy to forget that. Yeah, it is. When it's, they, she's, don't act, they, do, they do not act like teenagers in the script. They really, really don't. No, and she's voiced by uh, Gillian Jacobs. So it's like, okay, it doesn't really sound like a teenager either. So Eve returns from the, um, from the funerals. I think she goes to the private funeral and goes back to the, the teen team teen headquarters and finds duplicate one of the other heroes coming out of the showers and duplicate seems a little bit weird and that's when she realizes oh rex is still in the shower and there's two other versions of duplicate in there with him and she gets furious and breaks and rex is rex is fucking trying to to justify what he's done i know you're off with mark you're dating mark now it's like where have we seen any evidence for that? Even in Rex's brain, they showed up together once at a thing because they go to the same school. And it's like, yeah, they arrived together. He's like, oh, they must be fucking. So I'm just going to go fuck duplicate. And I mean, we're both red-blooded guys. So we can see the appeal of the fact that there's someone who turns into, into clones themselves. This scene actually really creeps me out. And I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. Because we see that duplicate feels what her clones are feeling and that's how that's how eve kind of cottons on that something's going going on every time yeah. every time duplicate gets killed then she feels it mhm she carries that well she does it's she never seems to flinch when one of those clones gets blasted apart or ripped apart or disintegrated or whatever that's fucking terrifying to me this idea that she just mm. in constant every time she sends a clone out and it gets killed, it's like, yeah, I just felt a laser blast going through my head. I know exactly what that feels like. It's like fucking hell. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's I can it's set up really well. I love the scene. I think it works like there's the slightly shenanigans teen drama element of it, but yeah, it made me think way too much about about how their powers work. And um, the fact that Rex then gets mm-hmm. his comeuppance, I was very pleased about because I'm like, yeah, you're being mean to me, show you're making me think about this stuff, and now no one likes Rex anymore, and I'm I'm happy with that because he says it's not the real Kate, oh, yeah, and it's like, dude, you can't possibly, yeah, you can't, like possibly, you can't possibly, possibly not like him, or not like any, him. Um, you can't. Yeah, you can't possibly have any empathy or sympathy or, um, you know, like, I don't think a normal person could possibly like Rex as a uh, as a character after this scene. Yeah. Because um, not only is he cheating on his um, cheating on his girlfriend, but at the same time, then you also get him trying to gaslight both his girlfriend and the girl that he cheated on her with. Yeah. You know, he turns to Adam Eve and he's just like, no, you, you, it's your fault because you're with Invincible now. So I had oh. to do this. And then he turns to the girl he's cheating on it with and he goes, by the way, I didn't even do it with the real Kate. I did it with the fake ones. It's not real. It's it's her fault as well because I did it with fake hers. And it's like, man, fuck you, Rex. I can't wait to see you get fucking murdered. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. Why couldn't Omni Man kill you? Oh well, Monster Girl gives it a try because after this, we the next time we really see these characters, it's in the the new Guardian sequence, I guess, because now that the Guardians of the Globe are dead, Cecil wants. Well, they need a, a team. They need a team together. So he goes to Robot and says, "Hey, will you go through the heroes and pick the new team?" Um, Omni Man won't join up. Mark has to make the choice. Will I join up as well? But they have this tryout session, and we get to see all these awesome, basically powers uh, of of all these different characters. I love this sequence. Honestly, it's one of my favorite bits. Oh, totally. You get so many superheroes showed up. I think it pretty much all of the, uh, the superheroes in America showed up for this. It was really important to everyone. Even Fight Force I know! Up. Fight Force reference! <laughs> and, you, and you still get the digs on Fight Force as well when Mark's just going like, Is that Demigod? Oh, shrapnel! And Burly, Pangea, Bug-Eye. Oh my god, there's Fight Force. Why'd they even come here? Oh uh, yeah, poor Fight good Force. because you do see some... Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you do see some pretty cool, very, very short um, fight sequences. And um, obviously we get a look at each and every one of the heroes that are, you know, joining the team. It was interesting to me to see that, um, you know, Rexplode, uh, basically every single member of the uh, the team team uh, was invited to join the uh, the force so it basically becomes robot who's by the way been selected by cecil to lead this new team of the guardians of the globe um robot basically picks all of his same teammates plus adds in um black samson and monster girl um am i missing anybody or is uh those the only two that were added outside a team team right no there's shrinking ray as well shrinking ray that's right everyone Um, forgets her because she shrinks yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, we get to see some some fun little fight scenes uh, where all these um, different team members are proving their value in the um, in the arena. It was surprising to me to see Rexplode picked for a, uh, like, an international-level defense team um, because Rexplode is, is an asshole and his powers are shit. <laughs> like, um, he doesn't seem to me to be a superhero that can hang with the uh, with the other more powerful ones. Wow! And I don't know what else he brings to the table. Wow! Uh, he doesn't feel like he, he doesn't feel like someone that brings any kind of super super level intelligence or um, you know tactical ability or anything like that. He's certainly not rich like Bruce Wayne. Like I, I haven't, you know, he I don't know what he brings to the table that made him worthy of joining the uh, the, the new Guardians of the Globe, except for the fact that. I do kind of still want to see him get slapped down every single episode because I hate him so much. And what better way to have him around for that, you know? And this might explain why Gambit doesn't have a movie yet. If uh, if Explode shouldn't really make the cut for a Justice League, Gambit, who's basically got the same powers plus a stick, uh, isn't really isn't really top tier material. Yep, I mean, you know, we we could, if we wanted to spend the next 45 minutes talking about Gambit, go into the depth of why he's actually a Beyond Omega-level mutant. We could. And uh, there are very, very good reasons why he's kept at the low power level that he is kept at, Well, uh, which is not his true power level, but that's the story for another time. (laughs) It is, and there, maybe Rex has hidden depths. I mean, he'd have to, because... He's nah, that, he's an asshole. He's just that shallow. He's worthless. We do get to see this. All, well, <laughs> actually, speaking of power levels, we get to see Eve like really step up, and she's a fucking powerhouse. It's like she's mm-hmm. on par with pretty much anyone we've seen so far, and I'm talking like regular Guardians level, like Mark level. It feels like she's got like she's able to just create matter out of nowhere and really take it to much bigger and stronger people. It's it's, yeah. it's awesome. She's like a, um, a a bit of a an extra flavored version of a Green Lantern, almost. Yeah. She's not, um, you know, she's not creating constructs purely out of willpower or anything like that. She is she creates constructs um, by you know. Manip- correct me if I'm wrong, because you know this is what I kind of gathered from the show, and I might be incorrect, but. She's an energy or a matter manipulator. Yeah. And uh, she creates constructs by manipulating matter on a, on a molecular level, most likely. Um, so, you know, she, she creates shields and walls and little jets for her feet and hands and all that sort of stuff because she's manipulating the matter 
of the uh, the world around her to create these things. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And it's really cool. It's not really explained in full, but it just feels like she can do whatever... It is very Green Lantern. She can do whatever imagination allows, whether that's a shield or whether that's throwing someone against a wall and turning them upside down and ripping their brain out if she wanted. It's like, I feel that given a bit more training, Omni-Man might be in trouble there, which is a shame because she's not really... Well, it feels like she could be overpowered and it's really just her own mental strength. But we'll we'll get to... I think we'll get to Eve in another episode because while this is a... A, a strong character one and there is a lot of her in this there's ones coming down the line which are much much more about her in general and where she comes from and her character depth here we're just kind of setting all of that up because we see her just like get freed from rex thank god um and then she refuses to join the the new guardians when when um she discovers that rex is on the team well rex and kate are on the team she's just like i can't i can't be on the team there um, which also has the great line of Rex, what did you do? Another little, uh, somewhat important part of that scene, I thought as well, was that you know he, Mark and Mark is there at these tryouts yeah. as well. He's overseeing, and, uh, apparently, just as a spectator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just as a spectator, but you know, Eve and you know he and Eve, you know, they know each other and they know each other's secret identities. They're in school together, so they're familiar with each other. She goes up to him and she confides in him, like hmm. almost right away. Like, um, you know, you get to see that she tells him, hey, I'm feeling angry and I'm down because I found that, you know, Rex Floyd was cheating on me with uh, Duplicate. And, um, you know, the excuse that he used was because he, or at least he told Duplicate, uh, that you and I are dating, which is not true. Um, but it's got me angry and upset and fuck these guys was the basic gist of the um, conversation she had with him. And I thought that was an important scene again yeah. because um, we're getting to see somebody be completely honest and uh, getting to see somebody cut through uh, the trope of hide information from everyone else and whatnot. And, um, you know, that, that I think is uh, an important little element that gives a little bit of um, a little bit of joy or a little bit of warmth back to the show and, uh, the char- you know, the characters within it. I will say the thing that I feel has the most warmth and um, really, bring- well, gives warmth to the show is the next scene we see Eve in, which is the fight with Doc Seismic over at Mount Rushmore. And it's not just because there's a lot of lava. Boom ch I mean, before we do get to that, though, um, there was a another scene where, you know, because they, you know, robot selects... Oh, yeah, team. yeah, yeah. There's the, the thing. And he pulls them to yeah and he pulls them all together into like a um a meeting room and he talks to him about what the purpose of the the guardians of the globe is and what the schedule is going to be and the training and the the education and all that sort of stuff and immediately um robot has serious issues assuming leadership of the team where basically every single one of them argues with him yeah um every single one of them has an excuse that they shouldn't have to or they don't want to or they don't want to do this training because of x reason or blah 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 um, Rex is still an asshole in this scene yes. and, um, you know, insults the other team members. Um, so it's, it's interesting there because you get that team dynamic now. There's a new Guardians of the Globe. Things are going to get back to back to the way they once were, where there's going to be a very powerful team of superheroes to defend the Earth. But, oh, no, wait a second. They all hate each other from day one. That sucks. I think this is an element that we actually see a lot or actually gets glossed over a lot in role-playing games and particularly D&D that the group has to come together for a reason and get along and stick together for a reason rather than just we're all players around a table sitting there and you know playing the game basically but there needs to be an in-character reason. You'd assume, I mean, look at the Justice League as an example and in that case kind of extrapolate onto the guardians of the globe that they're all individual heroes who have decided there needs to be a force there needs to be a group that can deal with bigger threats so we will work together as that group and we generally get along even in the the few moments we get to see them before fucking omni-man kills them all uh we see the martian man and aquarius working together that they seem like they're friends that there is these little bit of connection between them all so it feels like while they're their colleagues and now that we have a new team it's like they're level one characters who don't get along 
Why would you have the paladin working with this this warlock who's planning on sacrificing children? You've got Black Samson who, well, let's not get into the fact that he's black and he's called Black Samson because that's a whole separate thing. But he... He mm-hmm. used to be a guardian, and he always got this this whole attitude with everything, which means he clashes with Rex immediately, and everything they're going to do means that they clash. Monster Girl doesn't get along with him because she doesn't like Rex. It's just, and he doesn't like her. But yeah, so yeah, interesting scene, and uh, once again, you know, the writers definitely do double down onto the whole Rex is a dick. Ah, <laughs> look at her, she's adorable. But isn't there like an age requirement for this ride? Am I wrong? This seems weird, right? Rex. I don't know. You're here. Isn't there a dick size requirement? I'm sorry. For what? Your tiny dick? I mean, the way you've been strutting around here, you must be compensating for something. Um, <laughs> and has a small and dick. And then, yeah, we get... It's just, yeah. And um, we then get, yeah, to... And apologies for cutting you off before, but yeah, then we definitely get... A very fun scene where Adam and Eve, Adam Eve and Invincible take on Doc Seismic in a fight. And this fight was a lot of fun. Oh, it is the greatest. Yeah, it was like well choreographed, it had fun dialogue, you know, there were um there was everything you would hope to see in a uh, in a superhero fight. You know, a maniacal villain with um, you know, uh are very powerful weapons that he's using to create earthquakes and use you know seismic waves as a weapon and whatnot. Do you mean his? Um, do you mean his earthquake bra- earthquake bracelets? We need to take out his gloves. Those aren't gloves. Gloves have fingers. They're more uh, earthquake bracelets. <laughs> You're wearing earthquake bracelets. Yes, yes. <laughs> the uh, the earthquake gloves that are more accurately described as earthquake bracelets because there's no fingers and doesn't don't cover the hands at all. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and you you see here you get a fun little fight scene with great choreography, great art. Um, I feel like they put a fair pumped a fair bit of their budget for this uh, this episode into this scene. Oh, definitely. The fight scene choreography is really really beautiful. Um, you get to see that um, Adam Eve and Invisible work very well together, um, seamlessly, like a like a like a well trained unit. They seem to work very well together. Um, they save everybody's lives, as far as I could tell. There were no fatalities in the fight itself, except when Doc Seismic himself decides to die at the very end. Despite Mark trying to save him, you know, Invincible tries to fly down into this chasm that opens up into lava at the bottom and he can't, he doesn't make it because Doc Seismic uses an earthquake wave on him to throw him away and let himself fall to his own death. So Mark tried to do the right thing, didn't quite work. Um, you know, the bad guy decided to die. Um, but Adam, Eve and Mark, you know, bonded over this experience and they, they did work very well together. And I think that overall it was treated as a victory uh for for the heroes um but this was what interrupted um mark's date with amber yeah i'm impressed that it only took him an hour to do it all i think this is one of the the most anime scenes i've seen in a western or i guess a u.s show in quite a while uh simply it feels almost like an avatar the last airbender scene just the wackiness of it all but it's also really clever and kind of shows that this is a silly superhero world with people called Doc Seismic, who's an actual doctor of geology and also he minored in gender studies. So he has a good conversation with Eve. It's like the silliness of these one-liners of, of saving the saving Boy Scouts from getting crushed by a giant head and saying, I guess this is how you get ahead and realizing, oh, wait, I'm really bad at one-liners. And it sounds stupid when anyone says it. But also kind of the tragedy of what this real would be like in the real world that the reason doc seismic does this is because the bracelets give him concussion every time he uses them and he's kind of melted his brain to the point where he doesn't care about other people but doesn't care about himself either that when mark is trying to save him it's like you will die if you keep doing this and he goes no go away mark and he falls into like this exploding lava and it's like this person has hasn't just gone crazy he hasn't just like lost his mind he doesn't even realize what he's doing anymore. And that's the kind of super villain we see in in a lot of comics and, and things like that. And it's it's really fascinating to me. I mean, I feel this is probably the time to say this is my favorite scene of the the whole episode. 
I just love, like you were saying, mm-hmm. how even at Mark work in tandem that they haven't really trained. Like they've worked together once or twice as heroes before. It doesn't seem like they've really worked together as trained. They're friends. So they kind of know each other, but it's, they're already expecting each other's moves. And it's this really nice mm-hmm. connection between the two of them. But also the fact that they banter. They banter with the supervillain. They banter with each other. They banter with Cecil. The fact that Mark doesn't even know where Dakota is. And it's like, he, he kind of needs to know where Dakota is. You're, in, you're nearly 18, Mark. You need to look at a globe occasionally and figure out, you know, what's the country you're living in. It's like this little extra element of Mark's kind of kind of dumb, uh, which I just really enjoy. <laughs> But then that they do save everyone and that they try to save everyone. And this is another element of what is a what makes a hero? Is it someone who just defeats the villain or is it someone who tries to save the villain from from the same thing that's killing everyone else? Or save the villain from themselves? I think I think just really love this as a scene. Oh, totally. And um it was I'm gonna have to double up with you there, because I also picked this fight as my favourite scene as well. Um, just you know, purely by virtue of the um, the quality of the uh, the scene itself, like in terms of a well choreographed fight scene, would have been enough for me to pick it as my favourite scene. Um, but then you add in those extra layers of um, you know character development and the bonding and the uh, the deeper messages there. Um, definitely does uh, definitely did get picked as my favourite scene as well. Um, it was uh it was also a scene that you know was what interrupted um yeah. mark's first study date with amber yeah um and this is where they kind of leaned into that uh that storyline element again of doing what doing the superhero stuff is going to impact the people around you mm. um because he she turns up for the first study date they go into his room and almost before they've even sat down his phone starts ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And then she's like, right, just fucking deal with it. I'll go to the bathroom. You take your phone call and I'll be back. And so she leaves the room. Boom. Cecil teleports in. Hey, man, by the way, um, got Doc Seismic. He's about to kill a few hundred people over at Mount Rushmore. And uh, we're sending out Adam Eve, but uh, she could really use some help. So time for you to make a choice, old mate. And then Cecil's like, yeah, see ya. I think it's also telling that the reason they didn't ask Nolan to do it is he's off dealing with a kaiju. Yeah, definitely. Interestingly as well, after we forget the resolution of the Doc Seismic fight, because obviously Mark chooses to go and, you know, yeah. do the superhero thing and he apologizes to Amber and, you know, he makes his stuttering excuses and, you know, backs out of the room and then uh, changes into costume and flies away to go, go do the fight. Um, we then find out after that resolves, because, um, you know, Mark comes back to the house and he meets his dad in the living room or, the you know, when he's walking in the yeah. front door. And um, you, you get to find out that, um, and and this is actually no, you find this out in the post credit scene, hmm. I think. Actually, no, I can't remember where in the episode it was said, but it was said by somebody at some point in the dialogue of this episode that um, nothing has ever had Omni Man on the ropes like the kaiju did. Uh, so you, you have it pointed out to you very clearly that Omni-Man um, struggled to beat this monster uh, that he ended up beating off screen. And um, that that's quite an important element for an upcoming episode as well. Yeah, it is. It's actually right after this scene where Mark gets back and like apologized to Amber. And for some reason, she's like, all right, I'll give you another chance, the second chance in the in one episode for him. But yeah, it cuts to Donald, Cecil's, I guess, second in command who's standing by this kaiju and he's like yeah it doesn't seem to be dead he's reporting to cecil and he's like it doesn't seem to be dead and i never saw omni man get beaten up like that which is really interesting because the scene before we saw omni man and he didn't even mention it and again this is that mm-hmm. keeping work and home separate that he's come home and he's talking to mark about balance and talk- talking about hey look Debbie, I brought home some kaiju meat. It's an aphrodisiac. I'm going to cook out on the stove kind of thing. He nearly died. Like, according to Donald, Omni-Man nearly died out there. And now we're just seeing him, his usual cheery self at home. And it's like, there's a reason why we didn't see it. Because I don't think we're meant to put two and two together. And it's probably also cheaper not to, to draw all that, that we don't get to see every fight. But yeah, for us, oh, for sure, for a um, little cutaway 
bit of plot, I think that's really telling. That um, that it really does again just kind of dive into into what what we see. Oh, for sure. Or see of his character, I should say. And um, yeah, and Mark manages to play his cards well enough when he gets back to that study day after you know ghosting her for an hour um, that they end up hooking up and uh, making out on his bed. Get it, Mark. Um, which we then cut away, mm-hmm. and um, you know we then cut away to a scene where we have uh, Adam Eve who's, you know, at her home and she's all sad and she's packing up a bunch of things to do with her time in Teen Team. Notably, she's packing away a bunch of photos, um, you know, of her and Rex and other team members and she's looking sad and everything and she hears some... She hears the noises of some explosions going on outside and she, you know, gets her, um, you know, war paint on, you know, and gets ready to go out and deal with it. She finds uh, Rex Flode, um, the guy that cheated on her, um, she finds him sitting on a roof and throwing coins up into the air to explode like fireworks. And uh, he puts on a, a big attempted heartfelt speech to her about, you know, we should really get back together. I do love you. You know that I love you, etc., etc. And uh, then she is wise enough to recognize this for what it is. And she says to him straight, nah, you know, basically, fuck you. That was not an apology at all and you know basically if you're not sorry about it then you know the you know this ain't going to go anywhere ever so you know get out of my life basically and she flies away and um you know uh she you know she exits scene and she flies away and she decides to go and fly over to mark's house um to obviously you know confide in him because she knows that she's got a friend in him and can confide and she through the window sees amber and mark making out on his bed but she's happy for him, you know? She turns away with a smile and she says something to the effect of, like, on your mark, good on you, man. And then she flies away, happy for him, you know? No grudge, no bitterness there at all about that happening. Yeah, she. I think there's a bit of a tear as she flies away. It's not quite a, good on you, Mark, way to go, buddy. It's a little bit like, good for you, Mark. You found someone to be happy with. Because until then, we haven't really seen much interaction between Eve and Amber. And I don't think Eve, Eve knew that Amber even existed. I can't recall if Mark actually mentions her. Like he might say something when he flies off um, after beating Doc Seismic. I think he might say, oh, I wait, left Amber waiting or something like that and flies off. But I got... Yeah. Maybe this is knowledge of the comics, which I'm not going to spoil. I got the sense that Eve was going there to be like, Mark... I'm going to confide in you, but I also kind of want you instead. That that there is this little bit of a choice. Yeah, I just, I something about it, it just kind of, maybe it's just my love of, of love triangles, which usually show up in situations like this. You've got the superhero love and then you've got the civilian love. But yeah, there, I feel that there was a little bit of a tear of, I can't confide in you anymore because you're going to have your own stuff going on. And she flies away. And it's sad because we like Eve and we don't want her to be sad. But mm. that, I mean, apart from one more, two more scenes, that's kind of the episode. That's really all we get for the character development. It does feel like almost a, a filler episode, like you said earlier. But we do get this This next scene nearly became my favorite scene. Doc Seismic only just eased it out mm-hmm. because this final scene is fucking amazing where we get to see the GD, oh, yeah. GDA prison uh, where they keep all the villains that have already been caught and most notably the Mauler twins. But it's endearing and violent and ridiculous all at once. And what I love about it, where it's fooding time and this this nice security guard comes and he like tells the first Mauler twin, step away from the thing, I'm going to put the food in. He's like, gets the chicken pot pie. He's like, cool, I got food. Uh, Thursday. Chicken pot pie. Everybody's favorite. It goes to the next one, and for some reason, it opens early. And the guys, just, the Mauler twins, just like, cool, gonna grab you, beat you up, get you to open the door. <laughs> he does apologize to the guard. He's like, oh, sorry, Pete. And <laughs> just, I'm, like, knocks him out cold. I know. I First time I saw it, I thought he'd actually ripped the guard's arm off and was using it to open doors. And we see later, no, he didn't. He just severely injured him. 
But I just love that. He's like, yeah, I know Pete. Pete's my buddy. But if I have a chance, I'm going to knock Like, I'm going to mess him up and get out. And we get the most wonderful interaction between the two twins when he's, um, like, he comes out and he's, like, got the arm and he's, like, and the other one's just eating the pot pie with this expression of bliss on his face. And he's, like, got the arm and he's, like, hmm. How? Obvious. As the original article, my intellect's undiluted by the cloning process that created you. Oh, please, just open the door. Say it? You cheap, genetically inferior knockoff. Say it. Or stay here forever. I'm the clone. And this is great because on the karma element that we were talking about with Rex as well, we get that almost immediately in this case because the, the Mauler twins, they break out and they're busting through all the GDA people and they're um, like turning their weapons against them and they eventually get out and there's a turret that pops up out of the desert where they come up. And one of the twins is like, well, what do we do now? And the Mauler twin, this is the one that had to admit that he was the clone, grabs his brother and uses him as a shield to get close enough to the the laser blaster to take it out, killing his his clone, basically. And it's like, he was he had hubris. He was like, no, no, I am the original, which means he had to die. That he was he was too cocky. He was mean. Yeah, you also, this is the scene where you truly get a grasp of the fact that these Mauler twins are actually also super intelligent. Yeah. Um, because they, they hear the sound of the turret coming up and one of them immediately just verbalizes what kind of a motor it is, what kind of electronics there are and what megahertz range they're operating at. And immediately they both know exactly what kind of turret is coming out of the, uh, coming out of the earth. And you're like, oh shit, okay. They really know their stuff. They do. These guys are super smart. Yeah, they're really smart. That's what I love even more, that the one that was in prison, we can't, we can never tell the difference between them. There's Mauler Twin with goggles and there's Mauler Twin with, um, with lab coat. And that's kind of, the, that's the only difference between them because they are the same person identically. Uh, there doesn't seem to be an A or B. And the fact that we see one of them then die and he's like, well, I'll just make another brother. It's fine. But the one that was, wasn't was released is completely flummoxed. He can't understand. How the hell did you get out? I am just as smart as you, and I couldn't figure out a way out. So clearly, you know something that I don't, and that's kind of why I admit it. But we do see how Mauler Twin A got out, and that's because Robot fucking mm. let him out. Yeah, for some reason, he was remotely opening locks and gates and dropping ladders and all that sort of stuff. And um, he manages to get it done and then, you know, close down the computer systems and turn away before Cecil walks into the room and catches him. Uh, but yeah, that's when you, uh, where you find out that it was Robot that was uh, letting him escape or helping them escape remotely. And um, then all of a sudden you get that element of, oh, okay, another hero is going to end up being a villain. Yeah. Damn it. Can, can you trust any robot? You really can't. You really can't ever trust any robots. No, no. You have to assume, you have to assume at baseline level, all robots want to destroy mankind. They just have to accept this. And or at least you have to operate from that base level of uh, assumption. It's not innocent until proven guilty. It's world domination or humankind elimination before uh, benevolence, <laughs> if that makes sense. I mean, that's just the standard standard trope. But yeah, that's basically the episode. There is one more scene post-credits where we get to see a little bit of home life. We get a little bit more Nolan and Debbie, um, but also some Damien Darkblood. Um, our I boy, Damien Darkblood. Our boy, Damien Darkblood, shows up. Uh, our demon friend from hell who's trying to to re- find justice for those who... He's angel, but with horns and a little bit of a Columbo overcoat. And he shows up and kind of makes Debbie a little bit more suspicious about what Nolan's not telling her about the deaths of the Guardians. And I think tellingly, mm. she then doesn't tell Nolan that Damien was there. Yeah, that was an interesting element where she chose to um, not give Omni-Man the heads up. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it was... Uh, and that's definitely planting... You can see that Damien Darkblood has really successfully planted the seed of doubt 
into Omni Man's wife. Um, her name is that, Anna. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Debbie. But the way you said that, plant the seed Debbie. of doubt in yeah, his yeah. wife. It's like mm, that feels a bit weird phrasing, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, plant the seed of doubt in. Uh, no, you're Debbie. right. You're I right. mean, you know, hey, nothing, nothing is off, nothing is off limits for this show. Am I right? <laughs> you're right. Um, no, I think know, maybe that's already happened, and we just don't know about it yet. I think there is. I think this isn't just. Dark, dark blood you know telling her this and she starts to wonder i think it's been coming for a couple of episodes that no she keeps saying nolan you've changed a little bit um each time like when he comes home he's just being so callous about the fact that his friends are dead and she's like this didn't used to happen with you you used to be a different slightly different person and she realizes something is up and then dark blood comes to her and is like this is suspicious how was he the only survivor what is he not telling you and she's like I need to look into this further and he's not telling me the truth anymore. Or she, she finally realized that he's not telling her the truth. So again, it's all about that honesty in relationships um, and that upfrontness. Mm -hmm. And when Nolan doesn't do it, Debbie becomes suspicious and Amber and Mark, when he doesn't tell her the truth, she gets angry and tries to leave. And somehow he's managed to, to talk her back into staying and sticking his tongue down her throat. It, this isn't the first time we've seen Darkblood in the episode. He did show up at the funeral as well and kind of approach Nolan and just be like, I'm I'm watching you because it's a little peculiar that you survived and you don't remember anything. But we haven't seen the rest of him uh, in, in the rest of the episode until now. And I think that's good. Darkblood, I feel, is he's that character that should show up when you least expect it and when the villains or when the heroes least want him to. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of uh, in a lot of TV shows, and it's not just relevant to you know superhero genre, but in a lot of TV shows, um, it's also a big thing in pro wrestling as well. But there are always certain characters. Whenever they show up, you know that something very very serious is about to happen. Yeah. You know? And um, those characters are very very valuable. They may not get a lot of screen time in the aggregate, but. Uh, it's very good to have that element of um, when when their music hits or when they enter scene, uh, you know that a bomb is about to be dropped or at the very least, things are about to get a whole lot more interesting, you know? Yeah, and you've got that element of, of that with Damien Darkblood as well because you see people's breath start to come out like that mist and you go, oh, it's cold in there, Damien's around. And everyone kind of realizes it immediately of, yeah, the demon is there. He's looking for something. But you get that notice and you're like, something's coming. There's a demon in the house. Mm-hmm. It's it's cool. It's really awesome. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, that's also a good element in a number of good tabletop RPGs as well. Um, you know, like the first thing that comes to mind is the Curse of Strahd. Oh, yeah. The Dungeons and Dragons. Um, especially early on in the uh, in the adventure when everybody's uh, lower level, um, when whenever and well you know it's up to the DM's discretion really about when and how often Strahd might reveal himself to the party. Uh, but there's I think it, it's the intent, uh, you know, by the uh, by the authors of the module that any time Strahd does show up, it's uh, it's very very serious business. Um, because you know he could uh, for, for most of that module he could wipe him out with the flick of a wrist if he wanted to. Um, but it's not so much in his best interest to do that, is it? Um, so you always know that whenever he turns up, it's uh, at least you know as so long as of course the you know the DM is playing it the way that hmm. I believe the authors of the module intended. Uh, whenever he does show up, it's uh, it's very very serious business, and all the players um, you know get a little bit more sober at the uh the gaming table when it happens you know oh yeah there's that chill that goes down the spine when you see the black coach outside the the inn you're at and you go oh shit strad's in there maybe we don't want to go in or you just hear a wolf howl in the woods and you see this big black thing step out into the road you're like yep we're in for it now it's oh it's a great thing if you can get it right and Strahd's actually a really good example. Well, I think we'll talk about Strahd in a later episode as well, because I think there's some good parallels between Nolan and Strahd, particularly with their abusiveness um, when it comes to relationships. Because as I've said before, that this whole story is just dealing with domestic abuse and dealing with um, a family that lies to itself. Uh, but that's pretty much it for this episode. I mean, we do have our, our last little segment where we each pick a favorite character 
from the episode and how which one we'd like to see as an NPC or a player character in one of our games um, that we'd pick. And Mike, I've got mine picked out. I think we'll guess who it is pretty easily, but I want to hear yours first. Sure, I'm going to pick Monster Girl. Oh yeah, Monster um, Girl. Who she? Yeah, she did not get a whole lot of airtime in the episode, but um, she's a uh, she's a bit of a an incredible Hulk style character. Uh, where, you know, she, she just looks like a normal person until she quote-unquote hulks out and turns into a monster and absolutely fucking demolishes whoever she's fighting. Well, not just a normal person. She looks like a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah, because her um, her powers um, come at a cost where every time she hulks out, she becomes a week younger is, uh, is what, how I believe it works. Um, so she's actually 24 years old, but yeah, she looks like she's 12 mm. and, um, you know, that causes her, her own set of difficulties in life in general. Um, but very interesting character because, you know, it means that she has to pick and choose very carefully, uh, when she's going to be using these abilities that she has for the, the betterment or the, the protection of mankind. Um, a very interesting set of choices that she's going to have to make in the future, being that she's literally just voluntarily joined the team whose job it is to defend Earth on a full-time basis. So she might have to hulk out a lot, Mm -hmm. but she's chosen to do it. I think that's a really interesting one because I feel that she'd make a better player character than an NPC. I think that'd be a cool curse to give someone who might be a werewolf or an ogre kin or something like that, that you're only able to use your powers at a significant cost to your everyday life. I mean, this would be perfect for something like Monster of the Week. Uh, where you can play the monstrous um, and sort of a Jekyll and Hyde type character where you inject a a serum into your veins and you turn into this massive monster who's able to do anything with a a glance. But when you turn back, well, it's the standard curse of when you turn back, maybe you don't remember anything. Maybe you're a week younger. Maybe all your hair's fallen out or something that you can't really explain to people. And it makes your life progressively worse rather than the, the cursed with awesome that Mark kind of has where, yeah, I don't get to tell anyone or I've decided not to tell anyone about my powers, but I get to fly and bullets bounce off me. Mm-hmm. How about you? I've got surprised me with who your favorite character is. I feel that everyone listening to this episode knows who my favorite character is going to be. And that's Doc Seismic. <laughs> Cause what? Who? <laughs> oh, what? Oh, no. oh, I never saw that one coming. <laughs> He's the best. In it. He's wacky and bizarre. And, if I was running him in D&D, he'd be an artificer. He'd just be this little bit off of center guy who just has all these weird inventions and is like, yeah, I'm going to create a, a device that basically a magic spell. But the way I do it is I have a little glove that I hit some buttons on and then a portal opens in the air. And it's just this, this slightly off kilter guy, but with this massive intelligence massive intellect and almost a little bit of empathy as well because he's able to reference realize what's going on with people and comment on it and have no self-awareness about all the stuff going on with himself and to me that's really fun as a player character because you get to go oh yeah you've got this problem and that's where you're coming from and this is what we should do also i'm gonna wear a bird as a hat today because i need a hat bird gotta have a hat bird he reminds me a lot of um harley quinn in the birds of prey movie where she's cuckoo crazy. She's like, yeah, I'm living in this fantasy world where I do musical numbers instead of getting beat up. And I'm quite happy to burst into a police uh, station and beat the living crap out of everyone. But also I'm able to analyze all of your, and diagnose all of your deep-seated emotional needs when you're just talking about, you've you've got some definite anger issues in this situation. You really could deal with it with some therapy. I don't need therapy. I'm perfect. But you, you need a lot of help. Uh, a little bit also, he just, I feel that he could be an NPC too, if you go for the critical role element of Victor, if anyone remembers the campaign one black powder merchant who just gets progressively, I guess, more exploded as, um, as the series goes on, he keeps losing fingers as he keeps experimenting with his black powder and, um, basically going a little bit weirder every single time. And that as an NPC of somebody who the party goes to for advice, who goes to to learn about things. And it's just Doc Seismic, again, pointing out all of their flaws, but being like, no, no, I'm perfect. I'm this crazy guy. The world should belong to me. I, I, wonderful. But also, if you want to buy something, yeah, I've got something you can buy. Yeah, it's cool. I'll give you the bracelets half price. If I could even take it one step further, 
it's almost like a very Hannibal Lecter yeah. style uh, style character. Hannibal Lecter, absolutely brilliant and irrepressibly intelligent psychiatrist. Um, you know that can see into the minds and souls of everybody at the drop of a hat and um, can exploit them uh, relentlessly as a result of his insight into people. He's also incredibly evil and eats people as a cannibal because he believes that that's what he should be doing. It's the right thing to do. Why wouldn't he? You know? I feel that you need to turn the wackiness up a little bit more to get Doc Seismic. So yeah, he's a cannibal or he's a a supervillain that wants to take over the world, but he also works at a KFC and he has some. <laughs> yes. Oh man. He could, oh no, no. He 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 would have to work at McDonald's because they do shaker fries there. Oh God. Oh. Doc Seismic and shaker fries. Yes. That's spot on. <laughs> yes. Oh man. That is perfect. But anyway, we will end the episode there. Ready a lot. I'm looking looking forward to the abuse I'm going to get in the comments from this one. That joke. <laughs> uh, we will end the episode there. Mike, where can people find you so they can go abuse you for those horrible jokes just then? <laughs> oh, well, on every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night, Australian Eastern Standard Time, you can find me at twitch.tv slash doctor underscore chops. That's D-R underscore C-H-O-P-S. Thank you. And I am also on Twitter, which is at Talamin, T-A-L-U-M-I-N. Uh, the podcast is also on there at D-N-D-N-T-V pod. Uh, really easy to remember because it's just a string of letters, but aren't all words when we get down to it. So thank you for listening. Until next time, I want you to be kind to yourselves. You've earned it. See ya. Bye.